Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. It's a little bit loud. (laughs) We could open the door, though, for some airflow. So as I was saying uh, earlier, uh, meditation practice um, is something that you do. So that's what makes it a practice. And uh, if you don't know a lot of theory, that's okay. Uh, It's like uh, most sports. You just learn it as you go along. Um, And there are times when you might recognize that, oh, I really need some more technique. Or I need a better understanding of how this practice works. There's really two important pieces to understand uh, in meditation practice. Uh, One of them is the ability to stop. Our whole culture needs to learn this one. And in uh, Sanskrit, the word for this is shamatha. And in every uh, Buddhist tradition, usually the first practice that you learn is called shamatha. Uh, The word sham literally means to calm down or to stop. Um, In uh, the Indian tradition, before it was used in that way, it was a nickname for the Hindu deity Shiva, which is the deity of awareness, pure awareness. Uh, Sham means to be aware of our experience and also to have the ability to just stop. Stop running. Stop planning. Stop being so hard on yourself. Stop thinking through or overthinking every single thing. Clearing some space, clearing the ground. And the second piece that's important to know in kind of meditative paradigms is using that space that opens up when you stop to look really clearly and investigate what's happening in your experience. And uh, the Sanskrit word for that is uh, vipassana. Uh, in Pali, vipassana. A V is an intensifier, means to go in. And pasha is an I. So usually it's translated as insight. Um, 
And so these are two different wings of meditative experience. One is stopping, and the other one is seeing. And I think we all know we can't see anything very clearly unless we're able to stop. And to stop means to, to stop with your rigid perspective. The way you frame your experience. And when you, when you stop doing that, you can see what's going on more clearly. You're right in the middle of it. And in a way, you're always right in the middle of your life. You might say to yourself, oh, this is a new beginning. But actually, that's a trick. You're just right in the middle. There's a saying in, in Buddhist practice, it's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. Which basically is another way of saying, you're always in the middle of your life. And always being in the middle is also saying that what you see when you stop is that the ground is fluid. That our experience is process, is in process. That's all there is. And I think when we meditate every day, we start to get a feel for what it's like to be more like water. To be more in touch with a process rather than framing each thing and making it in reference to a me. So it's a mystical practice that's unremoved from process. I was reading an interview this week uh, in the Paris Review with one of my favorite poets, Anne Carson, um, who I think is from Ontario. Um, Here's what she says about poetry, which is basically a meditative practice. I think that's what poems are supposed to do, and I think it's what the ancients mean by imitation. When they talk about poetry, they talk about mimesis as the action that the poem has in reality on the reader. Some people think that means the poet takes a snapshot of an event And on the page, you have a perfect record. But I don't think that's right. I think a poem, when it works, is an action of the mind captured on a page. And the reader, when he engages it, has to enter into that action. So his mind repeats that action and travels again through the action. But it's a movement of yourself through a thought, through an activity of thinking. So by the time you get to the end, you're different than you were at the beginning, and you feel that difference. So the interviewer says, so it's an act. And Ann Carson says, it's an action, it's a practice. And the interviewer says, it's an action for both the writer and the reader. And Ann Carson says, yes, that's it exactly. But they share it artificially. The writer does it a long time ago. But you still feel when you're in it that you're moving with somebody else's mind through an action. Did you get get that? So what she's saying is most of us think about poetry, oh, I read a nice Mary Oliver poem about a deer. And we think, oh, she really opened something up, so I got to see a deer in a different way. But Ann Carson said, there's actually something deeper going on than that, 
which is when you're reading that activity, you're joining the mind of Mary Oliver while she's writing about the deer. And that's mind-to-mind transmission. So it's an action, it's a practice. And in a way, I think meditative practice, uh, which is what I want to talk about tonight, is so much like this. When you sit down, you're not imitating a Buddha. But when you sit down, you're joining Buddha activity. So actually, when you sit down, you're a Buddha. Because when you sit still, you're joining in the activity. Not that that represents, but that's part of the lineage of everybody who's ever sat down. You're joining their mental, heart, physical, spiritual activity. And then when you sit down, the narrowness of your experience, which I talked about earlier, uh, starts to settle. Lately, when I sit down, uh, I feel how vulnerable it is to be so narrow. Does anybody else feel this way? How small we are when we're so dominated by a busy mental strata. It's like a trap. And, and you can't think your way out of it. We all have a persona. But that's such a narrow place to live in. There's something much bigger going on behind that. We all have a glare behind us. It's like when you look at somebody who's standing in front of a bright window and you, you, you can't see them. And the thing about a glare is you can't see into it. And we all share this same glare. In a psychological sense, we always say, you have a persona and you have a shadow. But I think behind both of them, you have this glare, which is the existential dimension of our life. You feel it sometimes, like in high school, when you walk out of a party and you're walking home alone. You feel some feeling. I call it a religious feeling. You can feel it swimming in lakes. You can feel it every day when you're quiet. This this feeling of this glare that we all share. That's uh, in the background all the time. That doesn't have anything to do with your life experience. It doesn't have anything to do with your gender. It doesn't have anything to do with your age. It's this experience of being connected, being plugged into something deeper than just our busyness. And it's always saying, pay attention. Death is right here. I have a student who's 21. I work with her on Skype. She has three or four months to live. And the first time we met, which was just recently, she said, So I only have a few months to live. And I said, well, what do you want to explore together then? What's the most important thing? And she said, I want to know that when I die, there's something there. When I die, there has to be something there. So what do you say? 
That's the koan. She said, how can I practice this? I said, uh, when you're with your... She has a wonderful boyfriend. I said, when you're with your boyfriend, I want you to just kiss him. (laughs) But don't think to yourself, I'm kissing you right now because I'm going to die. Just kiss him. And when you're kissing him, let it be shared. So you kiss him and he kisses you and you do both things at the same time. So she didn't like this homework. (laughs) She said, I can't do that because every time I kiss him, I'm just so sad. So uh, anyways, she worked on this practice. And then uh, recently she said, oh, I get it now. When I really kiss him, that's what's there. And I said, yes. And so much color came to her face. Even on Skype, the color came to her face. So in other words, there was no silhouette anymore. There was a person there. The glare was embodied The light filled her face. Do you know what I'm talking about? When someone's so honest and you just see that their life fills their face perfectly. There's only one person like that in the universe at that time. And what I'm suggesting is we can all do this all the time. If we can do this shamatha vipassana practice. Stopping and seeing. So that brings us to the koan for the evening. Because I promised in September we would do a koan every week. Although I didn't think we did it last week. Uh, this is a koan that I think a lot of people don't know about. Um, Dogen quoted it. And um, it's called Yaoshan's This Buddha, That Buddha. It goes like this. Monastic Zun was at the assembly of Yaoshan, which is another way of saying this monastic named Zun was at the temple that belonged to his teacher, Yaoshan. And he was the head altar attendant. While he was bathing Buddhas, Yaoshan asked him, have you bathed this one? Or have you bathed that one? Zun said, Please hand me that one. Yaoshan stopped. That's, that's the whole thing. <laughs> Should we break that down a little bit? Yeah. Monastic Zun was at the assembly. So he's at the temple of his teacher, Yaoshan. And Zun's, jo- Zun's job, and some of you have had this job on retreat, is to be the attendant to the altar. Um we don't have uh, an altar attendant on a regular basis when we're not on retreat because we don't have a formal temple here. Uh, but if we did, the person who takes care of the incense, which many of you know how to do, the person who lights the candle, is also the person who uh, every certain number of days uh, washes the Buddha. You take the Buddha and you bathe the Buddha. When I was really young, I shouldn't tell these stories, but when I was really young, 
I, I practice at the Harry Christian Temple on Avenue Road. Um, before I knew it was a cult. <laughs> and um, one, one of the things, my favorite thing they did at the temple was one day, uh, uh, several days during the year, they would close all the doors and we would take all the deities and we would wash them. And I loved this practice. You take all the statues and you wash them so carefully. Um, here we're a little modest and we have a, a wooden Buddha. But in many temples, usually they're bright gold, you know. Um, so while he was bathing the Buddha images, Yaoshan, his teacher, asked him, Have you bathed this one or have you bathed that one? And Zun said, please hand me that one. And Yaoshan stopped. So this is an interesting con because the student is teaching the teacher. In temples and non, in temples and uh, uh, all over the place, um, especially in the Zen tradition, uh, monks and nuns spend a lot more time cleaning than meditating. Actually, a big part of practice is taking care of the garden and uh, polishing and washing and really taking care with those activities as meditative practice. So bathing Buddhas in a monastery uh, is, uh, may sound domestic, but it's actually a very profound job. Because when you're bathing a Buddha, who are you really bathing? When you're sweeping a garden, who are you really sweeping? I have a student who is a teacher. She's so stressed out as a teacher. So a few years ago she said, how can I practice uh, mindfulness to help uh, in the classroom? And so I said, oh, um, you should just sweep the room before you start teaching. I make these things up on the spot. <laughs> so, she, um, so this is the practice. She would come to school half an hour early, and even though the janitor had cleaned the night before, she would sweep, inhaling and exhaling, and she would sweep the whole room, clearing the space. But very quickly she realized she's not sweeping the room. She's sweeping herself in that process. And then the kids come into the classroom, and as they come in, she looks at each one in the face and says, good morning. And before that, she was like spilling coffee on the photocopy machine, stressed out, didn't know the student's name after the first month. That's her practice. I have another student who uh, is a surgeon. She performs abortions. Something like uh, 2,000 a year. Some of you have taken the precepts course, uh, have studied with her. And um, her practice is to walk from her office down to the surgery room, doing walking meditation, and then walking back from the room to her office. And she talks about how much more relaxed she is in her work, meeting each woman face to face. 
So please hand me that one. And Yaoshan stopped. So more about cleaning. So in Zen practice, uh, we take what's trivial uh, and what's profound, and we don't get attached to either of those things. So we're liberated from trivial and profound. That's, that, that is the heart of, I think, what I hope to teach here, is to, to be free of the trivial and the profound. Because something profound happens, and as soon as you go, oh my God, that was really... You're caught in greed and desire. Or as soon as you say, and people really suffer this on retreats, you know, on retreat you get there the first day and you find, oh my God, I'm cleaning the toilets again. I'm cleaning the windows again. And then you're caught. Oh, that's trivial. It's not as profound as lighting incense. Some people hire other people to clean their house. What happens with that? Does that mean that we're too busy to do that? We have more important things to do? Please don't answer that. (laughs) So one level of this koan is this challenge. Uh, This one and that one. So you can imagine there's a couple of Buddhas on the altar. Uh, Hand me this one or hand me that one. So what's trying to be pointed out here is that you are not separate than the Buddha on the altar. When you bow down to your cushion, you're not separate from your cushion. You're bowing down to yourself. When I was in Japan last year, I took this uh, um, hike. And um, at the top of this mountain, there was this uh, really beautiful temple, uh, a Shinto temple. And uh, I really had to pee. I couldn't find the bathroom anywhere. So I said, you know, where's the bathroom? Oh, downstairs. Go downstairs. So I walked down the stairs, which is into the mountain. And it just kept going down, 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 down. I thought, oh, this is getting darker, 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 darker. And then there were thousands of candles lit up in this basement room. And it's where they kept all of the urns filled with ash of the people who've died, who are members of this temple. Thousands of people, uh, all these beautiful urns with beautiful calligraphy on them, and they were inside, all these uh, ancestors. And then uh, I forgot that I had to pee, so I started, you know, <laughs> checking things out. And then um, uh, another interesting thing about Japanese altars is usually there's a textile in front of the altar, so when you're standing, you can't see the Buddha's face until you bow. So you bow, and then when you look up, then you see the face of the Buddha, which is your own face. So it's all dark. There's candles everywhere. And I walk to the altar, and there's some incense. So I light some incense. I put the incense in the ash, and then I bow down. And then I look up, and it's a mirror. (laughs) And you look up, and you're looking at yourself. Amongst all this ash was so beautiful, so profound. Or maybe it was so trivial. 
<laughs> we really need to be liberated uh, from trivial and profound. Uh, because when you do so, you're liberated from your small self. The small self loves profound things and doesn't like trivial things. And to me, that's just another way of saying love. To really be devoted to what's actually going on. Love can really liberate us from our isolation. Love is an activity, and it's also a way of perceiving the world. When you love something, you really want to look after it. And the opposite is also true. When you look after something, you start to love it more and more deeply. All of us, when we have someone in our life that's ill or that's struggling, and we start to look after that person, we start to fall in love. Or maybe your own body. You have an injury, you have an illness, and you have to start looking after something that uh, you've never thought of maybe before. A muscle in your shoulder, a pain in your back, uh, some nerve damage, it could be so many things. Your immune system, your digestion. And, and then you get interested. And also, taking care of something is really a privilege. I always think that psychotherapists are never honest about this. That it's such a privilege uh, to work with people who are struggling. I think we don't honor that enough. And then what happens when you're with somebody, really with somebody who's having a hard time? You fall in love. I make it sound like you can just fall in love with anybody at any time. And I really think it's true. Maybe that's why when we really feel something, we don't always look people in the eye. Because we're scared, actually, of the risk that we might fall in love with a complete stranger. And our practice teaches us how to have no breaks in that process. Because there are no breaks. Does anybody here ever want a break? You, I get like this a lot on retreats sometimes. You know, you're into like seven or eight days, and it's like, I just want a break. <laughs> but you're always in the middle. There's no break. You're doing work, practice, and then the bell rings. Oh, break. Oh, now I have to sit. I just want some work practice. In our house, we don't have a dishwasher, and so it's just more and more dishes. There's no break ever. Always dishes. I'll clean all the dishes before I come tonight so that when I get home I don't have to clean so many dishes but there will be a whole pile of dishes. <laughs> Something's always arising and we have to respond. There's a moment, it's almost complete and then it ends. And it has to end for there to be another moment. Again and again and again and again. Always in the middle. 
But if you elaborate all over that experience, then there's just me. This is me, this is my country, this is my gender, this is my city, this is my house, this is my bike, this is my nation, these are my beliefs. And then we close down that awareness of that glare, that existential pulse, pulsing away all the time. So monastic Zun was at the assembly of Yaoshan and was the head altar attendant. While he was bathing Buddhas, Yaoshan asked him, Have you bathed this one or have you bathed that one? Zun said, Please hand me that one. And Yaoshan stopped. No big discussion or interpretation. I like the story because it's dynamic and interactive. It's saying, hand me the Buddha, I need to bathe it. And that's the most important thing, is taking care of the Buddha that's right in front of you. Because when you really take care of it, it's you. Does anybody have that feeling, taking care of something? You start looking after it, and it's like, oh God, this is such a mess for my schedule. But then you're really there looking after someone. You're really there looking after something. And that's serving. And that's Buddha activity. And the student is teaching him that. So he says, hand me that one, as if it's a thing over there. And then Yaoshan, the teacher, stopped. He realized something. He saw something differently. That's the shamatha practice. Have you ever had this experience in your life this week where you're seeing something, you know what's going on, and then you stop, and then you're able to change your mind about it? I sometimes have the theory that being able to change your mind is deeper than enlightenment. Having some core belief that you've been holding on to since you were three and being able to suspend it, to see through it, that your feeling about it is not a fact, the fact, the truth, capital T. And also what I like about this is, you know, in Buddhist practice, there are no gurus. Teachers are just students who are willing to be students. Sometimes that's how I see my teachers, is that they're such better students than me. And it's uh, profound when you can study with people who are really willing to be students. Anyway, it doesn't matter. There's no teachers because there's nothing to teach and there's nothing to learn. The whole practice just comes down to honestly responding to what's right here. My brother, uh, who some of you might know, uh, uh, also has studied 
along with me, except he lives in the U.S. And um, one day, he went to a teacher that we, we both liked, uh, named Ed Brown, who's a Zen teacher uh, in California. And he went to Ed's house, and he said, Ed, uh, I would like you to be my teacher. It's usually a formal thing you say to some uh, teacher. I would like you to be my teacher. And Ed said, oh, I can't be your teacher, because I can't teach you how to be yourself. That was the end of the conversation. <laughs> so responding honestly is the teaching. And that just means saying yes. Willing to share yourself in this moment. Because this moment is only a shared experience. Unless you make a self back here. Stop. Look closely. Wash the Buddha that's right in front of you. Clean up. Do the dishes. Stop. Wash the Buddha that's right in front of you. Fall down. Get up. Stop. There's so many situations in our life where we have no idea what to do. Does anybody have any of these? I have no idea what to do. Should I stay? Should I go? What if we just stopped? And share share yourself. And wash the Buddha. Robert Frank, who was a great filmmaker in the 50s, says this, I'm always looking outside, trying to say something that's true, but maybe nothing is really true, except what's actually out there, and what's out there is constantly changing. So don't make a story about this moment. I meet so many students who are always making a story about this moment. Like, I should be mindful. That's also another story. I should be more like this teacher that I met once. Just give everything up and stop. Again and again and again. This whole thing comes down to all the millions of ways we distract ourselves. And we lose touch with ourselves. Life is really hard. Does anybody notice this? It's really good for a while, and then it gets really hard. And we have to have ways when things get hard to actually meet how things are hard and not to distract ourselves. Just to vow to live fully and meet courageously what's actually going on without a blueprint. I love when teachers like Krishna Murti and Alan Watts and Eckhart Tolle say, you don't need to practice. I wish I could do that. 
But actually, I think we all need to replace um, our idealism with craft. The, the craft of actually sitting still every day. Some of you who've been practicing with me for many years now, um, you know, you know, you know the whole practice. Maybe you come to talks like this and say, "Oh my God, I've heard all these things fifty million times." <laughs> and for for you, uh, once you've heard all these things fifty million times, you might realize, "Oh, I have a shape. My practice has a shape now." Just like a column, you know, a wooden column. Just like these columns. They have a shape now. And so now your job is just to ripen. You just do the practice again and again and again. And all the green wood in the center, which is still green, it has to ripen. Gets a patina. It gets wisdom. So all of us who are, are still a little materialistic in our spiritual practice, where we're looking for another technique, You have a mat, you have a cushion. Just sit on it. You know, you know enough. Te- there's no more technique. You could learn technique forever. In Boulder, Colorado, they have this term, workshop slut. <laughs> I learned when I was there. I really like this term. <laughs> Just let your practice ripen. Bow, offer incense, make an altar, take care of it. Do the dishes. Bathe. Stop. Bathe. To me, uh, that's uh, really being wealthy. Our country is so upside down. Being rich means you, you can stop. Because you have freedom that you don't have to be unconscious with the momentum of your habits. And then you're rich. And you're rich because then you have space where you can serve. To be really rich means to be a servant of a servant of a servant. So that's the best kind of justice. There's a great uh, thinker named Cornell West, uh, and uh, he he has a wonderful line, which I might be getting wrong, but he says, uh, justice is love on public display. Isn't that nice? I want to end with a a poem by Robert Creeley. Um, This poem, actually, I was just learning today. This poem... Uh, is from a book called When I Think, which was published uh, after his death. Um, and, and apparently the story is is that he had written this poem he really loved, but 
in the last book he published while he was alive, he just forgot to send it in. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Robert Creeley. I, I spent I spent time with Peter Levitt a, a lot lately, and um, he his close friend was Robert Creeley. So, uh, you, you, you an hour can't go by without Peter telling Robert Creeley stories. So uh, I've taken to, to reading Robert Greeley poems to understand who this guy was. So um, here's what he's, here's his poem. It's called When I Think. When I think of where I've come from or even try to measure as any kind of distance these places, all the various people and all the ways in which I remember them so that even the skin I touched or was myself fact of, inside, could see through like a hole in the wall or listen to it, it must have been to what was going on in there, even if I was still too dumb to know anything. When I think of the miles and miles of roads, or meals, or telephone wires even, or even of water poured out in endless streams down streaks of black sky, or the dirt roads washed clean, or myriad salty tears, and suddenly it's spring again, or it was, even when I think about all those I treated so poorly, names, places, they're waiting uselessly for me in the rain, and I never came, was never really there at all, was moving, I was moving so confusedly, so fast, so driven, like a car along an empty highway passing, passing other cars. When I try to think of things, of what's happened, of what a life is and was my life, when I wonder what it meant, the sad days passing, the continuing, echoing deaths, all the painful, belligerent news, and the dogs still waiting to be fed, the closeness of you sleeping, voices, presences of children, of our own grown children, the shining bright sun, the smell of the air just now, each physical moment passing, passing, it's what it always is or ever was, just then, just there. There's nothing to be said after that.